When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Birth control. Ho Chi Minh. Richard Nixon back again. Moonshot. Woodstock. Watergate. Punk rock. Got my three chords ready right here. Oh, I can see him. I can feel him. I can smell him. Hello and welcome to episode 103 of We Didn't Start the Fire, a song that's become a podcast that's a history lesson about all the biggest, strangest and most beautiful stories that shaped our world. Billy Joel drew our crazy route map and we just follow wherever it goes. Cold War, hot movie stars, big dogs, dirty dogs, tragedies and triumphs. I am Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie's school is out, Billy is in and he's in today with a... Yeah, this is a little unexpected from our soft rock popmeister, Billy, because the topic today, Tom, is punk rock. Katie, what is your instinctive reaction to those words? Well, my instinctive reaction to punk rock is that I have to announce to one and all that I was a fluffy, not a spiky. So growing up as a teenager in the Washington, D.C. area, there were two tribes. The spikies were the punk rock kids and the fluffies were the nuevo huevos. And so we had foofy, bouffant hair held aloft by many sprays of Aquanet. Although I have to confess that I did dabble in the tougher stuff, notably the work of polystyrene and x-ray specs. I loved her germ-free adolescence album. How about you? Casey, I was too young for the initial surge of punk and probably ever so slightly young for the initial surge of post-punk. So slightly strangely, my whole experience of punk is experienced through my grandmother because what would happen (laughs) in the little provincial town where I grew up, you still had, as often happens with musical styles and looks, you had very much a hardcore of punks that was still hanging around uh, school playgrounds and municipal playgrounds in the early 80s. So what would happen as the five-year-old me walked towards this playground with my gran holding my hand when she spotted the punks who to her represented everything that was reprehensible and evil about the modern world her grip on my hand would tighten (laughs) and we'd walk towards these bored 14 and 15 year olds with green spiky hair and she would squeeze my hand as if she would let go and i would be lost forever (laughs) so inadvertently she created the intrigue the drama and the dynamic tension that surrounds the forbidden that was punk rock. So to get more into that dynamic tension, our guest today and resident punk rock expert is the music journalist and author, Michael Han. Welcome, Michael. Hello, Katie. So, Michael, I'm wondering, um, in addition to your word smithery, have you had any experience slashing at a guitar and maybe spitting at the audience? Have you had a punk band in your past? Well, an imaginary punk band. Oh. Um, when I was at university and I worked on the student paper 
And at the start of one year, I wrote a column about all the exciting music going on in Leeds, and I thought I'd make up some bands to put in there. And um, one of them was a group called Sugar Shit, named after the Pussy Galore album Sugar Shit Sharp. And a couple of weeks later, was slightly disturbed to get um, a message, a letter from the promoter of one of the pubs in Leeds asking if I could put him in touch with Sugar Shit, who could open for UK subs a couple of weeks later. But confronted with the actual possibility of scary, very drunk men who like to push each other around and hit each other, having to watch me and my friends. There were friends in this imaginary group. We just never did anything. Having to watch us on stage, just humiliating ourselves. I thought, no, no, I think this group can split up before they've even done a gig. (laughs) So let us talk about the very origin of punk rock, because as an American... I'd like to posit that it started in the United States. What say you? I think as an American, you're completely right. Yay! Of course you you are. Thank you. Of course you are. But punk, I guess punk's meaning got taken over by English punk. That's the thing. It changed American punk too, because I remember Danny Fields, who managed the Ramones, talking to me about... um, the Ramones going to play the first show in in Boston, well, strictly in, in Cambridge, um, in 1976, late 1976, and the Harvard Crimson interviewing them and going, but what about the Sex Pistols? Aren't you just going to spit on your audience and everything like that? And Danny Fields and Johnny Ramone turn, turning to each other and going, that's it, we will never work in America. Punk just means the Sex Pistols and spitting. Yeah, well, you know, whoever gets there first with the most exciting branding, that's what uh, carries the day. That's right. But yeah, of course, of course, punk is American. And the first proper punk rock band, as we understand it, is is the Ramones, obviously. Yeah, but what about Velvet Underground, Iggy and the Stooges? Yeah, but no one thought they were punk. So, no. you know, the music writers make up their ludicrous categorizations, and that's proto-punk. Oh, OK. But, you know, of course things exist before they exist. You might as well say that Jerry Lee Lewis is making punk rock and in the 60s the garage rock bands or garage rock bands as they would have been called uh, correctly in america were making records that then became very influential on the actual punk rockers and the phrase punk rock was coined in the 60s as well so where do we see the start of punk this is an oft-discussed question as you say you can trace musical roots back into the past but if we were to put you on the spot michael and say take us to year zero in punk when are we and where are we I think it's the release of the first Ramon single, Blitzkrieg Bop, at the start of 1976. I mean, obviously those bands have been going around the Lower East Side, but you know, hardly anyone actually went to see them. Now, a friend of mine was talking to me the other day about going to work for a record company in New York in 1975. And one of his colleagues saying, let's go down to this club on the Bowery, which was, of course, CBGB, the home of American punk. I said, the first band up was, uh, it was a three-piece with a, with a girl bassist. And I said to him, what, Talking Heads? He went, yeah. Next band up was four blokes in leather jackets. What, the Ramones? He said, yes. <laughs> and the next one was television. I go, oh, my God. He said, there were only about 30 people there, you know. There was yeah. hardly anyone there. So this was a crucible of everything that was going to affect pop music and rock music for the next 50 years. Yeah, you look at those CBGB bills now, and you can find them online easy enough. Mm. It's like, every night is like per many three from Ramones, Blondie, Talking Heads, Television, The Heartbreakers, The Voidoids. It's like, whoa, this so, must have been extraordinary. But they probably didn't know it at the time. They were just no. like the neighborhood bands. No, exactly. And so what was the hallmark of the Ramones and what made them so gosh darn punk rock? The Ramones did everything loud and fast with no solos. Uh, their first album lasted 29 minutes. It had 14 songs. They repeated lyrics, uh, maybe the greatest uh, meta lyric of all time. 
second verse different from the first in Judaism punk and then third verse same as the first they were they were they were aware of everything they were doing and what they did was portray extreme stupidity and ultraviolence beat on the brat with a baseball bat and uh, lots of uh Sort of therapeutic, perhaps glue sniffing. Glue sniff. Well, substance. Many kinds of substances. Yeah. There was carbona, which was. Uh, I, don't, I don't even know what carbona. I used to. What is carbona? You're I'm not, American. I'm not really sure because I don't partake in but the sort of substances. I think that's in the domestic cleaning range. And they had a song Yikes. called "Carbona Not Glue," expressing their preference for carbona over glue. <laughs> but they got sued by the makers of carbona for breach of copyright, so it got removed from later copies of their second album. Okay, so that's where punk starts in the states. Michael. Well, I think so. But you ask anyone else, they'll say different. They'll say, oh, it's the Royal Power or it's the Clash or... Well, I'll twist it around for you then. Where where is it starting in the UK? And could it have started in the UK had it not already started, arguably, in the States? Yeah, because they were were different things, really. The first record is New Rose by The Damned, which is Autumn 76. But the Sex Pistols and The Clash and The Damned have have started gigging. The Pistols have been gigging for a year or so by then. But but it's, it's a different thing. Because a lot of the American punk was really arty, the Ramones accepted, whereas English punk comes out of glam. And, you know, everyone talks about, oh, yeah, it's Lou Reed and it's David Bowie. It's the sweet. It's the fucking sweet <laughs> as much as anything. The sweet and slayed, big and loud and brutish. And so it develops in a different way. Rather than, you know, Tom Verlaine of television doing 10-minute guitar solos, you have bands celebrating the fact they can't play. You know, the, the famous advert in a punk fanzine, here's one chord, here's another, here's a third, now go and form a band. Or the song by the Desperate Bicycles, the medium was tedium. You know, Once it got out of that tiny art school contingent around you know, the pistols and the art colleges and it went provincial, it was just about, who can do this? Anyone can. So, Michael, talking about uh, cultural cross-pollination, a cultural butterfly who did a little cross-pollinating, at least by his own telling of it, was Malcolm McLaren, the empresario who originally was managing the New York Dolls, that glam meets Rolling Stones outfit in New York City. And then he decided, hey... That seemed pretty good, and then he got a he copped a look at Richard Hell in his punk T-shirt and thought, "I'm going to bring that back to the UK." And so, by his telling, that's why he started the Sex Pistols. And he apparently said to the Sex Pistols, "Blank Generation" by Richard Hell is quite a stirring ditty. Why don't you try and do your own version? And they came up with "Pretty Vacant." Well, Malcolm McLaren is is an amazing story, isn't it? Not least because the romanticizing of managing the New York Dolls when he had them dressed in red patent leather and claiming to be communists, which incredibly didn't work commercially in America in the mid-70s. <laughs> who would have thunk it? I know, who would have seen it coming? But yeah, he, he assembled the Sex Pistols, and that's a famous story about John Lydon rehearsing in um, Sex on the King's Road by miming to I'm 18 by Alice Cooper. So yeah, the impulse, if you can just get up on stage, you can do this, was there from the very beginning of English punk, albeit alchemized yeah. by Malcolm McLaren. Did you see that Danny Boyle series, Pistol? I did. I saw a couple episodes of it. I actually really liked it I thought it, it was end. really charming. Tom, did you see that series? No, Casey, you gave it glowing reviews, and I spoke to another friend who's very much into their music, and they were damning 
of it. Well, it got, um, it got slated by everyone at first, but if you stuck with it, I thought it ended up being really good and yeah. very interesting. Well, it's based on Steve Jones' book, Lonely Boy, his memoir, which is really affecting and, you know, unexpectedly quite brutal, his, his upbringing. One of the things that charmed me when this cross-pollination was happening, and I've been reading up on it, Legs McNeil uh, put together a great oral history and talks to all those those early movers and shakers. And apparently when Ramones came over, first came over to London, and then also uh, the Heartbreakers, who were the detritus of the original New York Dolls, so that was uh, Johnny Thunders and co. They came over to the UK, and uh, they'd be playing the Roundhouse or something, and the UK punk contingent would be lurking in the back alley, so the nascent Sex Pistols or the the Clash, who had yet to play but one gig, but they were kind of trying to face off, size each other up, and then also menace each other because it was almost as kind of like not so much about battle of the bands but just like street gangs who were trying to see who was toughest. Yeah it's this kind of amazing story it was July the 4th 1976 and Ramones opened for Flaming Groovies at the Roundhouse and um, in the retelling I, yeah, all of the then minuscule number of people in London punk royalty came because here was a proper punk rock band and yeah the Ramones like to report is all these people thought we were like an actual street gang and they were terrified of us. They kept asking, are they, are they going to piss in our beer or something? You know, <laughs> we were just a band. But yeah, it's kind of extraordinary to think that a group who'd had one album, which no one had really cared about, could come over and, and an entire scene was there. I mean, that's why I would say the Ramones are the first punk bank too, because every one of those British bands went to acknowledge them. All three of them that existed at the time. All these years on, Michael, when we're so familiar with both punk records and the origin stories of punk, it can be really hard to get an understanding of quite how shocking punk would have been at the time. So can you contextualise for us what else is going on in the musical landscape? And if Katie and I were, I don't know, in our late teens and we're in a provincial town somewhere in Britain, how would punk sound to our ears? I think it, it's it's a strange one because actually if you listen to like the Pistols records now, they just sound like really big heavy rock records. Yeah, but, for sure. But with someone whiny on top of them rather than someone singing. So that's a big difference. But what made it different was everything that went around it. And the best way I can illustrate that, because I, you know, I was when punk happened, I was eight, 1977, and I went through 77, 78, 79, seeing the punk bands on top of the pops and always being a bit frightened. What are they going to do? Are they going to destroy the studio? And they never did. They come out and play pop songs. But it was the context around it. And a thing I really vividly remember, as my grandmother used to live in Cumbria, and we used to go up and visit her, and she got the Sunday Post, the Scottish paper, because um, it came quicker to Cumbria than the London papers did. And one day when I was eight or nine, I was reading this, and there was a, st- a heart-rending centre-spread story about a mother who felt she'd lost her 13-year-old son to punk rock, the evil scourge of punk rock. He used to be so nice and outgoing, now he's just in his bedroom the whole time, blaring out this loud music. I think he might be sniffing glue. You know, people assumed that punk represented something evil, but then... This happened every 10 years or so. Music for a long time went in basically 10-year revolutions and they all came with a moral panic attached. Mid-50s, it was rock and roll and that first moral panic. Late 60s, it's psychedelia and the moral panic around LSD. Uh, Late 70s, it's punk. And then 10 years after that, it was acid house. That 10-year rotational cycle has disappeared now. But there was something in human nature that demanded something to be riled about in popular culture every 10 years in the post-war years. 
This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello Fire listeners, it's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com WDSTF, as in, we didn't start the fire. So, that is betterhelp.com WDSTF. Eat stress-free this spring with Factors delicious ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen, each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So last night I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon. It was absolutely delicious. These are no-fuss, no-mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking or cleaning up. Simply heat and savour the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customise your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. The thing that was so fantastic about punk was not only was it the music, but it was also the attitude and the clothes and the hair. I mean, there was just so much to get involved with. Can you describe the the classic punk tropes? You know, what was involved sartorially speaking? Well, it all changed because in the mid 76, 77 in England, it was all about having your stuff from sex or seditionaries, you know, your Which was the shop and the kings yeah. were there, Malcolm McLaren and Vivian, Vivian Westwood. Westwood. So it was all ran. about your, your, gay, your gay cowboys t-shirt or your bondage trousers. In America, it was quite different. I mean, the Ramones were leather jackets and ripped jeans. 
most of the rest of the bands look like they just wandered in off the street. And Apart Ramones, from Blondie, who were glamorous. Oh, exactly. And Ramones actually had long hair. I mean, that was yeah. quite, th- that wasn't punk rock, was it? I mean, it was just kind of like stoner. Yeah, the cla- people forget Mick Jones's hair was pretty long by 1978. Mick Jones out of the Clash, not out of Foreigner, whose hair was always long. Um, <laughs> The bands had their distinctive style. So for The Clash, it was all that, I'm sorry, faintly ludicrous kind of faux revolutionary stuff with, you know, Red Brigade stenciled across their shirts. They're being craftsy. Then you got the, the later bands will develop the style even further. So you get people like Joy Division looking like a kind of cross between academics and bin men. Yeah, short hair and tight trousers. I mean, mm. Joe Strummer once said, you know, like trousers, like brain. Uh, it's a suggestion that anyone who wore flared trousers had a... <laughs> A baggy, useless brain. And so let's talk about the first time what would be considered perhaps a local movement in London exploded all over the nation via the Bill Grundy show. Well, via the Bill Grundy show, when the sex, well, what was it called? The Today Show with Bill Grundy, when the, the Sex Pistols went on with their entourage. And who um, was in that entourage, by the way? Well, Jordan, um, who died recently. Susie Sue of the Banshees was in there. I think Steve Severin's in there. The movers and shakers of, of early punk. The Bromley continued. As, as they were known. Bill Grundy was winding them up and they let themselves be wound up and they, they John Lydon told him he was a, a dirty rotter. A fucking dirty rotter. <laughs> One man was so outraged he put his foot through his TV screen because he couldn't believe the filth. The filth and the fury. <laughs> but you know, John Lydon as a person, as a front man of a group, he actually was like nothing that had ever been seen before. He was Dickensian. He'd had serious childhood illness and... He, ju- he looked like something from the mid-19th century, hunched over with terrible teeth, that bright orange hair, his mad glaring eyes. Pasty skin. Don't forget the pasty skin. And then these lyrics that were just, where did that come from? She was a girl from Birmingham. She just had an abortion. I mean, obviously, I know the story now, but yeah. you know, when you first hear those things, or even hearing God Save the Queen for the first time, which was several years after it was a single, you know, I would have been 12 or 13, but the daring of someone to open a record by saying, God save the Queen, the fascist regime. Just, Whoa! And not to mention the commitment behind his vocals, which is just some crazy siren wail from the depths of uh, a bog with lots of skeletons. It's concentrated fury and pain, isn't it? His voice. It's the essence of pain. Where does that voice come from, Michael? Because it's influenced so many artists since, and you can hear little bits of Leiden in some big name singers. Famously, Liam Gallagher has got a little bit of the Leiden wine. Was it entirely John Leiden's own invention? Well, that voice, I think, yeah, it was. I mean, Leiden's listening habits were actually, you know, quite varied. Um, he was a big fan of Van de Graaff Generator, uh, the prog band, a big fan of Hawkwind. You know, all the people associated with Hawkwind say, oh, yeah, it's all our shows through the 70s. I think a lot of his stuff, if you look at it, is about repetition in sound, which is where he went with Public Image Limited. But none of those are groups you think, yeah, their singer is one of the great stylists. Although Peter Hamill of Van de Graaff Generator obviously has his <laughs> fans. But, but no, what Rotten did was like nothing else. I mean, if you listen to Iggy... Iggy is still, I mean, it's drawled and it's snarled and it's, it's slurred and it's sneered, but it's still recognisably singing. Lou Reed, I mean, less singing, more talking, but he's, it's not confrontational, the voice of Lou Reed on Velvet Underground Records. Whereas Leiden was just from another place entirely. You get moments like that on some of the mid-60s garage records where a singer just suddenly sounds unhinged. There's an amazing scream coming out of the solo on the Electra's version of Action Woman. 
not the litter's version of Action Woman. Spoken like a rock journalist. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Watch my rock hack B-side knowledge. The radio <laughs> session version's better. But Leiden's voice was like that through the entire record. I also want to ask you about uh, the musicianship of that time because people made a big song and dance. And Johnny Rotten did it as well about the fact that it was the time for the rock dinosaurs, your Pink Floyds was passed, and now it was time for this this cleansing era of not even being able to play. And by the way, to qualify this question, I should mention in passing that I am touring with a former Sex Pistol, the bassist Glenn Matlock, as well as the Blondie drummer, Clem Burke, and we're going to be touring Lust for Life. Another landmark in uh, the growth of punk. Another landmark in the growth of punk. And I am Iggy. Quite improbably, but I think you'll find convincingly that's happening in a minute. In fact, listeners, if you want to come and see me on tour in the UK, go to lustforlifetour.com. But uh, I mention this because the fantastic Iggy Bowie veteran guitarist Kevin Armstrong uh, was telling me a story about how he considered this whole time, this punk rock era, the Pol Pot era, where you had to pretend that you couldn't play. And so you had lots of people who were so great at their instruments, but you had to suddenly be like, you know, Helen Keller about the whole thing and just like, oh, I'm not really sure what I'm doing. I'm just sort of like fumbling around in the dark. And later on, you could reveal that you knew what you were doing. Yeah, I think that's probably more of a British thing than an American thing, because Tom Verlaine certainly wasn't shy about showing off his his chops. Yeah. But one of the things I love about punk comes after punk, and it relates to this, and it relates to Billy Joel too, and it's when old lags realise that they have to incorporate new wave into their music in some way. And it, it's it's the last great unrehabilitated area of pop. <laughs> At the big end of this, you've got Springsteen, who's... Starts changing from 78, 79, 80. There's Fleetwood Mac, where Lindsay Buckingham gets obsessed with it all, and as a result, we get Tusk. Billy Joel, too. Glass Houses is Billy Joel's punk record. I mean, he's clearly been listening to punk and new wave, and it's also, several years before we didn't start the fire, his first mention of punk in song. Hot funk, cool punk, even if it's old junk, it's still rock and roll to me. Ooh, there you go. Billy, finger on the pulse. Oh, yeah. And I was talking about Glass Houses the other week with some musicians, and we all agreed it was the last indisputably good Billy Joel album. Sorry. You know everything about everything, Michael. I don't. I don't. But the the level below those superstars, it's where you get groups like the Romantics, who'd been dossing around bars for years, saying, hey... People have now got an appetite for sharp three-minute songs. We can do this. And so you get the sublime. That's what I like about you. It's people like Rick Springfield. So it's all over the second tier. And you can argue that people like Pat Benatar, too. Well, for sure. You can hear the new wave in Love is a Battlefield or We Belong to the Night. And I think that's... People have gone about, oh, yeah, punk didn't happen till America till Kirk Bain. No, no, no. No, no. Punk punk is all through the American charts in the early 80s. It's just not called punk. But when you're talking about bands like the Romantics or Mm. the Knack, I mean, that's Mm. more power pop, cheap trick. Yeah, but that, they're, they're people who've listened to punk and gone, we can sure. do that, but it, it won't be confrontational. It's like the British invasion yeah. with a little sousant of punk. Late 70s power pop is punk with the attitude taken out. Agreed. Michael, most of the bands we've talked about so far are male-fronted, but one of the unique things about punk was the presence of female bands and female icons. Tell us about Susie Sue, tell us about X-Ray Specs, tell us about the Slits. Well, loads of them in the early days of British punk, that's what punk gave people because it was, until co-opted by the big record labels, it was DIY and people had a chance to learn what their skill was. 
I mean, Susie and the Banshees, legendarily, one of their very early gigs at the 100 Club Punk Festival, they did a 15-minute version of the Lord's Prayer because they didn't have any songs, <laughs> which has sort of gone down in musical <laughs> legend. And other people say, no, it was the worst thing ever. <laughs> there were this, and a lot of these groups, too, were sort of off at the sides, too. They weren't doing the kind of rama-lama down the middle brainless thing. So Susie and the Banshees is always far more interesting. The Slits were a remarkable group, going in all sorts of different directions. The Raincoats doing something very similar. You know, the Raincoats version of Lola, um, the sort of deliberately incompetent version that changes the songs about gender identity anyway, in new and different ways, is a, is a feat of imagination. A feat of imagination over ability, but brilliantly done. And yeah, Polystyrene of X-Ray Specs. Oh my gosh, I love Polystyrene. Just an extraordinary, you know, a woman of colour in British male-dominated punk rock. It was an extraordinary thing. And such a cute cultural commentary. You're thinking about germ-free adolescence mm. or Warrior and Woolworths. I mm. mean, just talking about people being obsessed with, you know, hygiene or just this quotidian experience that you have mm. and not trying to kind of do these huge broad strokes of uh, we're angry at the world. Like, she's just yeah. boiling it right down to what happens when you put one foot in front of the other. It's interesting, Tom, that you mention women in punk because I think, as is often the case in music, they're the ones that go right off piece. So you have a lot of guy bands who are kind of doing kind of brutal, thuggy, affably lunk-headed music with the exception of Johnny Rotten's approach, which is more malevolent for sure. But when you get the women involved, it seems to really elevate the material and make it much more individual and strange and eccentric. Well, it becomes about more than aggression, I think, because I'm not saying that music made by women can't be aggressive. Well, it's angry in different ways, is what I would say. It's reflectively angry um, as much as, well, it's not shouting at the world um, so much as nudging it and Poking it, and, and also being like, I'm thinking about Susie Sue and how mm. sinister yeah. that music is, and and her approach, and um, how, uh, like you say, the raincoats are subverting incompetence and elevating it into something else. Yeah, I mean, I guess these groups they kind of sum up the internal tension at the heart of punk, which is on the one hand. Is it a voyage of musical discovery to do something that's never been done before? Or on the other, just a chance to be as loud as and as fast as you can? And that's what happened. You know, punk cleaved apart. On the one hand, it went into post-punk and the groups who wanted to be more experimental and arty. On the other, it went into things like hardcore punk in the States or, or psychobilly over here, which was, yeah, it was about male aggression almost entirely. When was the peak of punk? Is it in 1976? Is it in 1977? Because I get confused where first wave ends and second wave starts rolling. It absolutely depends who you ask. If you ask people who were around St. Martin's Art College in 1976, or if you read John Savage's book, England's Dreaming, you know, punk really only matters for about two weeks in late 1976 when only three dozen people know about it. (laughs) And as soon as anyone else knows about it, it's ruined. In terms of the records released, you'd say 1977 is the high-water mark. But that's because that's when all the great debuts come out. But, you know, you you could make a case for all sorts of years as being the year that defines punk. You know, is it 78 where this stuff becomes incorporated in the mainstream and Blondie become the biggest group in the world? Is that punk's biggest year? I don't know. Or is it, you know, sometime in the 80s when the first wave of punk has completely disappeared, but hardcore is spreading this network of DIY shows and promoters and bands and labels across America. They would all have decent claims. Actually, I do have one other thing, punk thing, Katie. I do have a hardcore punk tattoo. 
Oh, you do? I do. Tell me what it is. I, I have the minor, uh, hardcore, I have the minor threat black sheep. Oh. Now, would that be minor threat from... Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C., which is where I hail from. Mm. Although I was never a spiky as we fluffies referred to the punk rockers because I was a little too frou-frou-y. I liked uh, angsty, stripped-down, post-punk Nuevo Wavo. So, Nuevo Wavo? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I was a little bit of a punk dilettante. But um, it is interesting, that whole hardcore movement in D.C., because it was also straight edge, so-called. Yeah. So they didn't partake of, you know, the, the glue in the bag or, or beer or anything like that. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't fuck. At least I can fucking think. As wow. the Minor Threat song says. It sounds a little like borderline insul, but... Yeah, it does. It does. Whatever gets you through the night. <laughs> <laughs> well, it ended up getting... The whole straight-edge hardcore punk theme ended up getting completely pilloried by other people within hardcore. I remember reading about some hardcore band who claimed to be the most... They claimed to be ultra-edge, I think, and their stipulation was that you couldn't be part of that scene unless you'd also been a member of the Boy Scouts. And <laughs> That is some kind of purity test. So now I want to talk about how punk was disseminated from the inner circle, the connoisseurs, the purists, into the world. Because, well, I moved to London in 1984, and I do remember at that time there'd be postcards available with uh, pictures of, of very photogenic punks. And you could go down to Topshop or, you know, some sort of mall-style store and buy yourself a studded headband or some stripy tights. So, like, everybody could have, like, a, a, a little sprinkling of punk. I'm interested in, in that, how it, it kind of gets a little denuded and a little neutered, but is even more appealing, in a way, to the, the wider public. Well, it, it, everything transmits quicker in England than in America because we have national press, national radio, and national TV. And so, you know, by 1978, you're seeing punk bands on Top of the Pops. And Top of the Pops was the great disseminator of music. It's hard to explain to anyone who was not English and alive through the 70s and 80s. But Top of the Pops was where music on television was if you were a teenager or a kid. And every teenager and kid in the country watched it every week. And so once there was a punk band on, everyone knew about punk. It wasn't one of those things where, hey, did you hear that WKRY out of Toledo has playlisted The Clash? It's, it wasn't like that. You know, it's, <laughs> it's everywhere. And it was everywhere in the papers. And of course, you know, where there's anything, where there's anything creative and anything striking, there's money. And it became a commodity to be commodified, just like everything else does. Just like grunge did a few years later, and suddenly you get the fashion magazines doing, your guide to how to dress like you're from Seattle. And it was just wear a fucking plaid shirt. And this was in fashion magazines. That does make me wonder, Michael, because you know there's this period in the 60s, we'll refer to it as the Austin Powers Carnaby Streets period, where <laughs> if you believe certain accounts, then the whole of Britain, the whole of provincial Britain indeed, is dancing around in the sort of stuff that Austin Powers would wear. Whereas in actual fact, that scene was probably the Bag of Nails and the Scotch of St. James and about 14 people. So at Pete Punk, is it similar? Is it actually this tiny scene? Because you will hear stories from people who were maybe the only punk in their town. In the beginning, it was a tiny scene, but of course it spread and it spread to people who were not 
you know, visibly punks. The, the great, it's always fun when you look at old film or photos of gigs from 1977 and you look at the crowd. And yeah, there are three people with spiky hair and <laughs> leather jackets. And then the rest of them are, are the same spotty Herberts with shoulder length hair and dandruff and, you know, their dad's sports jacket that it always was, like at every gig. But you pay more attention to the people with spiky hair who are spitting than you do to anything else. And I guess, you know, for a lot of people who were not necessarily punk, punk was an opportunity to be free for, you know, two hours on a Wednesday night. Yeah, you could go and spit and be revolting and horrible and pretend that you were doing speed in the toilets, but then go home to your mum and dad afterwards and get up for school the next day. (laughs) The common wisdom about the difference between U.S. punk and U.K. punk was that U.S. was more just about energy and uh, the U.K. one was more about, you know, genuine political anger and protest. People were bent out of shape because there were no opportunities and no jobs and, you know, education was terrible. Do you think there's any truth to that or were people just trying to... uh, burnish the legitimacy. I think music writers kind of like to make it seem like, oh, what we do is so important that there must be cultural reasons for this. It might just have been that people were fed up of really long keyboard solos or the kind of the very anodyne nature of a lot of mid-70s chart pop and wanted something loud and aggressive. Because a similar thing happened with heavy metal and the new wave of British heavy metal, about which I've written a book, Katie, called Denim and Leather. So there were bands like The Clash who were explicitly political. There were The Pistols. I mean, you could say that's politics, but it sounds like the rage is in Coate and it's as much against himself as anything else. But, you know, the Buzzcocks weren't singing about politics. and Loads of the bands weren't. And plenty of the bands that were, people like Chelsea or Sham 69, were doing it in the, kind of the most kind of mm, ham-fisted way possible. I think it was always more about the excitement of, of the noise rather than any kind of genuine social well, revolution. Did, there, there was that band Crass. There were Crass, but they're, they're hippies, really. Oh, okay. They're hippies who mm. happen to be playing punk. Right. They just have a little candy coating of uh, the punk du jour. And they're very serious about it. A a friend of mine was telling me the other day about going to Dial House, the crass establishment in Essex, and sitting down with Penny Rambo, the leader of crass, and saying, so about the commune, and that was the first question, Penny Rambo said, it's not a commune. Let me explain to you the rule." And went into a 10-minute digression on how communes have agreed rules or everything. This is a free house where everyone can act as they want, so long as they don't affect others. Mate, okay, you're a true hippie. Right, for sure. Michael, how did punk music influence other cultural spheres? Obviously, Vivian Westwood was hugely involved in original British punk. And fashion you know, spread throughout the 80s. I'm not a, I'm not a fashion maven, as, as you might imagine. But, you know, you, you looked at, at pop programming, you looked at pop culture in the 80s, and people wearing things that owed part to glam, part to punk. And bondage and like, bondage, you know. And the ki- sense of transgression. Yeah, kinky, yeah. rubber, this, that and the yeah, other. I think that owes to punk. Literature, well, I mean, you got sort of punk novels. I mean, things like Kathy Acker, um, Blood and Guts in High School. But I have to confess to always finding that kind of thing unreadable. I'm not saying it's not good. I just found it unreadable. So I can't really comment on that whole genre of punk literature. I used to get terribly confused as a kid, you know, seeing films described as punk films, thinking oh, that means it'll be about punk music. And it never did. It usually meant there was a mining punk musician in it, or it was cheaply filmed and just set in a dirty apartment in New York somewhere. But people wanted to be part of punk. They were kind of glomming onto it and saying, yeah, yeah, we're punk too. We're punk. But punk as, as an actual thing 
as a cultural reference to drop was probably, I would imagine, dead by about 1980, unless it was punk of the three litres of cider and a Mohican and charging tourists 50p to take a photo. Which you can still see in, in Camden Town. Yeah, that guy, the Camden, the Camden, for, for listeners outside London, I'm really sorry, but in Camden Town in North London, there's a big market, biggest tourist attraction in London, and on the bridge over the canal, there is always a punk guy with a big red Mohican, and he has a sign saying, tourists, one pound, have a photo with me. Um, we all, in fact, the local paper, the Camden New Journal, did reports on him during the pandemic because how is guy who gets his photo taken for a pound surviving? I'm concerned in the pandemic when the streets are empty. Yeah, well, you know, uh, I don't, I don't really want to ask. I mean, perhaps he has a different persona that he adopts at that stage. Yeah, he probably did accountancy via Zoom for those two years, <laughs> or you know, probably handed out masks or something, just adapted to the culture. So punk has its high point. Punk is disseminated via corporate concerns. And then what happens next? It's moving on because punk itself was so limited in musical form. So it became post-punk and then new pop and the new romantics. All those people came out of punk. And it was just basically the same personnel, but they had learned to master their instruments a little bit better. Or it was the people who'd be going to those first wave of punk shows, like Duran Duran and Spandau Ballet, who were then said, yeah, I like that stuff, but I do also like chic. And I do also like, in the case of Spandau Ballet, prog rock. Or And then and then John uh, Johnny Rotten became John Lydon, his yep. real name, and did uh, P.I.L. And who made extraordinary music for a few years, really extraordinary music that sounded nothing like punk, sounded like nothing like anything else ever made. Right. And punk just became this perpetual, it was it was the music of cider drinkers on street corners until a decade later when it started happening in America. We're talking about grunge. Michael, I'm going to ask you a horrible question, but you are a music journalist and I'm sure you've had mm. these sort of thoughts in your head. Could you please name for us the definitive punk single and if this isn't a contradiction in terms, the definitive punk long player? The definitive punk single is This Perfect Day by The Saints, an Australian band. It came out in the UK in 1977. They appeared on the same edition of Top of the Pops as The Pistols doing this song. And as one writer said, um, next to uh, the sweaty mania, The Pistols look like children. And it is true. I think for This Perfect Day, it's just the most exciting two and a half minutes, the most vivid explosion of energy. And the best punk long player, well, I don't know, best, you see... My favourite is Ramones Leave Home, the second Ramones album. But is it the best? I mean, it's also basically the same as This Perfect Day by the Saints. I won't pick the Ramones, and I will say something that doesn't sound punk, because he died recently, um, Marquee Moon by television, uh, which shows the full extent of what people calling themselves punk could, could spread to. Michael, you've made a convincing case for why Billy has even been uh, quite legitimately affected by the juggernaut that is punk rock. It's kind of ironic, though, because uh, I guess Billy Joel is is, uh, one of the dinosaurs that the new guard were reacting against, but he doesn't seem to have a beef with them. That's because I don't think he is or or would regard himself as one of the old dinosaurs. He was someone who still loved three-minute 1960s pop songs. And that's what punk basically harked back to. Enough excess. Back to the songs. Do you know what I love about you, Michael Han, is that you are not excessive. You are pithy and tasty and deeply nutritious in every opinion and comment that you make. 
while you're making me blush. Well, you are a little pink, but that makes you even more delicious. Thank you very much for all of your punk rock thoughts. I very much appreciate your appearance today. Thank you for having me in. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. Tom, one of the things that really interests me about this whole saga is that competitiveness between the US and the UK punk scene, who could officially and legitimately lay claim to it. I have to say, from my point of view, I certainly have no punk rock credibility. One, because the first punk rock single I ever bought would have happened years after Iggy and the Stooges and the Ramones and the Sex Pistols came on the scene. And two, because as I came to understand belatedly, it was a novelty record. But the reason why I went for it was because it was on sale at my local indie record (laughs) shop. I would have been about, I don't know, 16 or something. And I can't remember the name of the band, but the title of the single was tantalizingly, I Want to Be a Punk Rock Janitor. Oh, I didn't expect the word janitor to follow from the other words that you were giving us there, Katie. Yeah. How, how did, um, did the lyrics explain how a punk rock janitor would manifest itself? All I remember was that the chorus very catchily bounced off the track thusly, I want to be a punk rock janitor. <laughs> so it was just a grating, infantile, ridiculous, and I think from this uh, local uh, cobbled together motley crew of hopefuls, they just thought janitor sounded like, I don't know, a pretty beat thing to be doing, like you were dealing in rubbish and other people's cast aside detritus. So therefore, if you put punk rock next to it, that made it a statement. You would also, if you were a janitor, Katie, you'd probably have easy access to a number of brooms, um, which would be ideal for for practicing your punk uh, poses on, um, using the broom as a makeshift guitar. Yeah, or perhaps just to 
steady yourself as you practice your pogoing. <laughs> well, if you are a punk rock janitor and you'd like to get in touch, we shall give you those details shortly. In the meantime, if you would like another podcast to listen to, you should absolutely try a couple of our previous episodes that also deal with music. Number one, British Beatlemania with the preeminent Beatles professor, Mark Lewison, or perhaps our episode about Bob Dylan. If you'd like to get in touch with a story about your experiences with your very first punk rock single, or even a guest idea, you can contact us on email at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk or on social media. We are at Spread That Fire on Instagram and Twitter. And make sure you check out our merch collection at spreadthatfire.com. For our next episode, Katie, we shall begin, or if I pronounce it correctly, begin. And I'm begging you to listen. See you then. <laughs> Crowd Network. A place where you belong. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, 
painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.